Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, welcome to Remote Control, the Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking with Peter Morgan, the creator of The Crown. We've also got a fun chat with a legendary Dolly Parton who produced Christmas of Many Colors, which is up for an Emmy Award. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum with Variety, and it's my pleasure to welcome Peter Morgan. Hello. How are you? Well, thank you. I'm well. Congratulations on the Emmy nominations for The Crown. Thank you. How does it feel? Um, it feels, well, everything feels strange uh, uh, on this much jet lag, but um, uh, I, I'm delighted. I, I sometimes struggle to be happy. And so then I ask myself, what would it be like if we hadn't got any nominations? I would then know what it would be like to be nomination-less, and that would feel terrible. So um, I'm thrilled, I suppose. I think I am. <laughs> You're British. You can't be that happy. <laughs> it's about as happy as you're allowed to be. Yeah. Well, it's an elusive butterfly happiness. Another profound bon mot. <laughs> it's very clever this morning. <laughs> What about the response to the show? It feels like people have really embraced it. What does that mean to you? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm so out of sync with, with that. I mean, I did get a sense of it. When, when the show came out, there were, there were a couple of months where I did get a sense, ju you know, just from, I suppose, um, email count, you know, or, 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 or reactions. But for the most part, I, 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 I operate and I write in a news blackout at the moment. Um, just because what's going on politically in my country and in this country is so depressing. So um, I, I've sort of tried pulling back from uh, news websites. And that means I'm pulling back from critics and, and and I'm not really engaging with what's being written about either the show or me or indeed anything else. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot more time reading nonfiction about the period that I'm writing about. And that seems to be a perfectly good way to conduct my life. And any time I sort of think, shouldn't I re-engage, I come out and I feel I've been exposed to radiation. And I, I, I retreat again quickly to my uh, comforting Edwardian world in the 1950s. You know. Can't say I blame you. Radiation may become a reality. Yeah. Yes, it, yes, yes, if they can, yes. Not to get political. Um, how, what do you think it takes for a show? We were just talking a little bit about this. What do you think it takes for a show to break through the clutter when we've got, you know, in an era with 400, 500 scripted shows on the air? Um, well, I... I I don't think it's just about having a company as supportive as Netflix that, that, that you know that promote it in a way. Although, of course, that's critical. You know, you, uh, I've, I've had the experience of, of of making films that you know were either not supported enough or, or, or supported in the wrong way, 
uh, and so having having a co- having a company that's that's bold and confident and 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 behind you of course that's a big part of it um the other part i think is finding something that you know it's pixie dust you don't know what will connect with people uh, uh, you know i I'm of an age now where I've had one of everything. You know, I've had things that I thought were wonderful not connect. I've had things that were terrible connect. Um, and and uh, I'm happy to say that this one, I'm sort of both proud of what we've all done um, and it seems to have connected. So, you know, it's a, that's an unusual combo. Talk about the experience of working with Netflix. How involved were they in, were they in the process? Did they give you any notes along the way? No, no, um, th- no. They're as good as their word. I'm, I'm, I'm here to say it really is true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there it, is a promised land. <laughs> there is, there is slightly a promised land. Although, although it does. Um, is there a nev- I, here? I am automatically, you know, uh, uh, default setting. Looking for a, see if there's a, a negative part of that. I don't think there is. I, except that I feel a greater sense of responsibility. Perhaps, you know, I recognise it's a golden opportunity. Um, and, and I think writers and directors uh, have have yearned for and fought hard for this level of autonomy so that when you actually get it, I feel a sense of collective responsibility. I, I, I feel the weight of my colleagues on my shoulders because if I and, and, and my fellow producers, if we overspend and, and get it wrong or if I take what has been generous, uh, nothing like as generous as reported, by the way, but but still generous funding from Netflix um, to make a show and don't make it well, then they they'll be they'll 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 want to interfere more to to safeguard their investment and uh, and I want to show that r- that artists can be trusted financially and creatively, so I do I do feel responsible like that. I know you. Um didn't want to reveal the budget numbers, but what freedom did that allow you to, t- you know, were you given enough money I, to tell the story? People have written about, the, the, the correct budget numbers have been written about now. Uh, okay. and so, so I feel, you know, we can talk about that, even though it's not that interesting. It's just a lot less than what everybody <laughs> said. People, what happened was, because they, because, because they commissioned two seasons, um, people took the money for the commission for both seasons and assumed that it was for one season. And, and so they, were ju- they, they, they got it wrong uh, by a multiple of 100%. So. But was that important to be able to tell the story you wanted to tell? The money? Yes. No, I think you you know you could tell this story in a much more internal. Uh, you could you could tell it quietly, and you just have to do it in a lot of differential focus. You know, you'd have to do a lot of close focus with backgrounds blurred. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we have enough money to be able to have our backgrounds in focus, and uh, and it's important. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's no, actually, it isn't important. It, it's nice. It's nice, but important is that the foreground stuff works. The first season definitely reflected a lot of that attention to detail. I mean, it feels like you really went in and you know recreated the costumes, recreated certain scenes. That I think that really helped, though, did bring the show to life. Well, if you if you can, if if the opportunity is there for you to um, to tell a story that takes place in in palaces and involves foreign travel, and uh, you know you're able to do it in a way that reflects the reality, great. Uh, I do think it would work... I, I think any drama ultimately would work in a, you know, in a minimised version, which is what theatre has proven for gen- you know, centuries. Um, it isn't all about scale. Um, that said, I think what's exciting about this is it, it, it sort of... It, 
to be on the set of The Crown is to be on the set of a what, what traditionally was called a, a mid-budget movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in, just in terms of the trailers or in terms of the equipment available or in terms of the extras or... Um, and the ability to maybe spend a few more days in the editing room. It, if, if what we're talking about is a new era of cinematic television, um, you, you do need to have something close to cinematic budgets. Uh, I, I, I do still think that we're in a transitional phase, and part of the challenge for me uh, as a showrunner has been that people have now this expectation of cinematic television, but they're still thinking in terms of historical television schedules and so you've got Netflix quite understandably wanting a season of The Crown every year and that is 10 episodes made in a very different way from the way that traditional television was made and yet they're hoping for it still to meet a traditional television you know schedule and that, that's very very difficult because you know we are I, I, I've obviously worked on a number of films in the past and when I go on set for The Crown and the way I'm working with my directors it's in no way different to any of the feature films that we've made and uh, at no point have I ever said oh well this is TV therefore let's do it this way and by that I mean more of a factory farming approach Uh, we we make this in as bespoke a way as we possibly can and and as close to a feature film way as possible the fact that we're doing it ten times per season (laughs) (laughs) is um it's a lot. It really is a lot, yeah. But then I guess in the, you know in the, in the old network TV days, uh, they were doing twenty three episodes a year, weren't they? Or twenty six? Yes. Hard to imagine. I'm I'm just extraordinary. Yeah. But then I I have just this deep newfound love and respect for all showrunners. I mean, uh, I I didn't know it was possible to work this hard and and to feel this tired. <laughs> but you know, it pulls at you in in so many different ways, and um, it, it's in many ways rather like novelists nowadays have to be you know personalities because half the business is writing a book and then half the business is traveling around the country selling it like a game show host Um, screenwriters nowadays if they're to prevail in television need to not be the private reclusive types that traditionally writers have been they need to be you know producers and businessmen and 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 um, leaders and often writers aren't leaders they are, they are critics and followers or not followers in a bad way but they're, they're observers and outside mm-hmm. the system and, and then this way you need to be very much inside and No, I think about that a lot because you get into this business as a writer because you want to write a show and then you become a showrunner and suddenly you're running basically a small business mm. and it's all about managing budgets what was the hardest part for you in taking on that showrunner role? For me the hardest part is Dealing with people, uh, I, I, and by that I don't mean dealing with people because I really I, I, I'm I like people, but but I don't want to hurt people or upset people, and 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 part of you know ultimately ultimately all creative endeavour, any project is one person's party. There is ultimately a host to every party, you, you know, and and whether, you know sometimes in a movie it's a film star. Ultimately, the movie is happening because that film star is there, or because that director is there, or because that st- studio president or that producer there's always somebody's party and when and when it then finally comes to a point where there's a difference of opinion there is ultimately only one arbiter in the end that can prevail and 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 that stuff i find 
I find painful and difficult. And also, you know, I, I like the writing and I like the editing, but frequently you're writing one season, you're editing another season, you're, and you're publicizing a third season, which is what's happening at the moment. And, and um, being pulled in, in a lot of different ways is exciting for some people and a trauma for others, and I fall into the latter camp. <laughs> he says with a smile. <laughs> it's true. You have to laugh about your traumas. <laughs> is there something you learned from the experience of making the first season that you're bringing to the second? Um... I think so, although I have to say there was a, you know, uh, it, it was managed very well uh, and, and it was a happy ship. So, we, we, you know, we had, a, we had both a, a functional and a happy ship and, um, the, you know, uh, there's not much that we're doing differently uh, second time around. We, uh, my own particular way of working, I, and everybody's different, is that I like to make sure that there's time to look at an episode, cut an episode, and then see what's missing, and then do additional shooting material. And, of, you know, finding a way of in making sure that that's in the system and part of it organically rather than um, a last-minute desperate, oh, and we still need to do this. Um, that's not an afterthought, that it's part of the process. Uh, I think we're trying to make it that it's more part of the process and less of an afterthought. I would say that's the biggest difference. What can you reveal about the second season? What themes do you want to tackle? Well, you know, by virtue of the fact that they marry in episode one of season one and uh, each season is a decade, the, the story of the second season is a story of a marriage that's in, into its 10th year. And that's a very different you know, anyone who's been married for 10 years will tell you that's now a whole different set of problems and issues. You've got children. And so that, that's just dealing with them. Uh, uh, you know, I've always said that the A storyline is, is the marriage, certainly for the first two seasons. Um, and, and the second storyline is her relationship to the job. And so, of course, by this point, she's, she's, a, you know, she's more settled, more accomplished. And, and then the third you know the third part of the uh, you know the third part of it all is is her relationship to the country and, and and the prime minister and the prime minister's relationship to her and the country and and uh, you know it's just a fact that a superstar like churchill was followed by some mustache unhelpfully mustachioed men who bear an un unhelpful physical resemblance to one another anthony eden and then harold macmillan uh, both of whom have not survived in the greatest hits of British prime ministers. That's so you're not, so you're not going to another superstar. You, you know, you, you don't have a John Lithgow mm -hmm. explosion. So there were uh, there were other challenges to sort of say. Well, and, and I think very much Princess Margaret has become the the superstar of the second season as she finally meets someone that she wants to marry. Um, uh, both the actors that play those prime ministers do a spectacular job. It's not that. It's that it's that they unluckily inherited the responsibility of playing prime ministers that the world has largely forgotten. And um, it's my job to try and make them memorable, but it's also my job to not lie. They were forgotten. They, they have been overlooked mm -hmm. by anything other than political you know, students. So um, uh, uh, what, what made them interesting to me was that the first three Prime Ministers, Churchill, Eden and Macmillan, all resigned. 
Uh, and so by the time she'd been queen for 10 years, three significant, ambitious, uh, educated men had quit. And, she, and so the pattern was set, uh, you know, that politicians become ill, they become frail, they become weak, they become hubristic, they screw up, and they bow out in shame and in an undignified manner. They walk out backwards. And she has outlasted 13 now. So, yeah. um, you know, we've knocked down the first three bowling pins. <laughs> <laughs> Ten more to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's so interesting is, you know, one of the things I would say about the show is we know how the story ends. We know that they end up together, but you manage to find the dramatic tension in, t- in how the story unfolds. What is that challenge like for you? Well, it, it, there are significant challenges. You know, um, if, if you know, I would have, I would have loved to have been given. You know, I would have loved Tony Soprano as a as a protagonist, and what a genius character, and and what an inspiration to me that show has been all the time. I, I wouldn't be doing The Crown if The Sopranos had not happened. Um, that was the first time I saw the power of. I really felt the power of both binge watching, but also. Uh, this form of long-form storytelling and and where I was just sort of beside myself uh, at how good it was. And, um, uh, you know, to have a character... uh, uh, My observation of Tony Soprano, uh, uh, the masterpiece that is Tony Soprano, um, was that he was a character you could send in any direction. He could be kind and caring and compassionate and he could be violent and cruel and, 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 and boorish. In equal measure... And it would still feel consistent. I would so love that, you know, to be able to really kick out in any direction. You know, I've got a, somebody who really behaves in a certain way mm-hmm. and thinks in a certain way, and it's her absence of volatility that defines her. You know, she's an she's an unremarkable woman with a remarkable um, achievement. You know, of stability or invisibility. You know, and and these are not the qualities that you immediately think of. You know, as, as your protagonist for a long-running television drama, right. yeah, you think, "Christ, give me someone who reaches for a gun and blow, you know. <laughs> uh, plot twist, <laughs> right?" And 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 just yeah, uh, uh, just uh, you, you know, as a writer, you just want someone who can lash out, mm-hmm. and you can write those. You can, you can let rip. You can mm-hmm. just let rip. There's not a lot of rip letting going on. Um, that said. I'm amazed uh, at, at the grip she's, you know, she, she, she's, uh, the, or, or, or that my Elizabeth, or that she, or that the predicament of being a woman like that in a role like that has, it continues to feed me, inspire me, and challenge me, and um, to write a quiet, private, refl- you know, quiet, private woman of limited imagination. Uh, still kind of I don't know I, I, not only does it challenge me but I seem to be able to do it and, and, and I seem to wake up in the morning wanting to do it and, and that astonishes me What has Claire Foy brought to the performance for you? Well she's just a fucking magical creature mm-hmm. um, she really is she's why we all do this sort of thing you know you, when, you, when you hit gold like that I mean you know when you have a protagonist that you know and an actor playing that part that that can I mean she has I, don't, I, I really don't know where to begin you know <laughs> I had it with Michael Sheen and, and, and now I've had it with her you know I had it with Helen 
I've had it with a few actors. I've been lucky enough. I had it with Jim Broadbent and Frank Langella. You know, certain actors where you just think, oh, uh, 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 okay, this is it. I've, I've found someone that I can, you know, and whenever anything was wrong with any of the episodes, and I looked at them in post, I knew exactly how to fix them, and it was always by starting with her. You know, I would go straight to her, and just a close-up on her face would orientate the whole episode, and it would orientate the whole show. And, um, uh, you, you know, she herself is quite different. Um, it, it, again, as with Michael Sheen, I have no relationship with her outside of, outside of the written word. Uh, I never see her privately. I never see her. But I feel extraordinarily close to her and connected to her and I don't mean the queen I mean Claire Foy mm. it, you know I, I, it wouldn't be I couldn't there were three or four actors that were my go-to actors whenever I sort of felt hmm not sure what to do with this episode I'm not sure where to take it there'd be three or four that I could just write with my eyes closed and, and I was connected to and as soon as the show as soon as the creator is connected to an actor the scenes make sense you know it, it, so I think she's astonishing. She will have a career of many decades. Uh, I say that touching wood that her health doesn't let her down ever because her talent never will. So you've got quite a challenge then for the third season. You're talking about recasting the role, right? Yeah, it is a challenge. And, and uh, you know, we're blessed in England with a deep pool of, of, of actors that have not been forced unnaturally down some crazy star system. Uh, uh, you know, we have a thriving theatre culture. So I, I remain hopeful, but we haven't done that bit yet. Talk to you about Matt Smith. I feel like he gets sort of lost in all of the conversation. Why is that? I don't know. I want to talk about him right now because I think his performance is tremendous. That's really great that you say that, and it's music to my ears. I, I, I'm mystified as to how he's been overlooked when the part he plays, a bit like what John, uh, John Lithgow did with Churchill. These two characters, Churchill and Prince Philip, are such, particularly in England, they're such, um, they're, they're so often satirized. It would be like mm -hmm. saying to someone, act me a believable, three dimensional, emotionally complex Donald Trump. Good luck. You, you know what I mean? We're so used to only seeing satirists mm -hmm. uh, and cartoons tackle Prince Philip. That, that, and I think Matt, Matt Smith's performance particularly when you know who he is in his private life, how different he is. I mean, it's an astonishing performance, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm sad that he's not with us on this little Emmy train. You know, it's, it feels completely... And just same with Vanessa Kirby. I, I, it's, it's sort of... Uh, it's, a, it's a horrible omission, and it feels like, I think, what have I done wrong? Uh, should I have beaten the drum for them more public or more publicly I, 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 I feel responsible somehow I don't know why I, mean, I, I don't know what to do <laughs> because I, I, I'm, I'm with you I, I, you know I, I know the degree of difficulty of the dive you know what I mean I know that mm -hmm. they just did a double pike and a twist and a whatever it is and entered the water without making a splash and, and people have just overlooked it and I, I know the degree of difficulty of what they've just done it sounds like we'll see more from both of them though in the second season you will you will what did you learn? I know you do a, a lot of extensive research. Is there something you learned that's going to take place in the second season that surprised you? Oh, I, I should hope every five minutes of the second season there'll be something there that I both didn't know. And I mean, I'm I, I, in England, we don't have a tradition in the same way, but it's also partly because of this, what we are talking about earlier, about how much television is being made. Um, 
one of the consequences of that is that uh, you know a, a lot of the talented writers are running their own shows or doing their own shows and 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 so we don't really have a writers room tradition in the same way and I'm having to do a lot of the writing myself but I do have eight full-time researchers and the full-time researchers are my story room and they it, it, you know when I map out the season at the beginning of the process I'm constantly asking them to to give me stuff you know give me more give me more give me more and I'm doing my own reading and and I like I just have to trust the fact that if I'm as, if I'm astonished by something, then other people will be too, because I probably know more about this family than most people. So, if I find something that surprises me um, about British political or or, or or cultural life in the, you know, at that time, I sort of think, hmm, this could really interest an audience because it's really interesting me. And uh, so, it, it, as a long-winded answer to your question. There's a lot of research that goes into this. And then where are you now in production? Are you done with the second season, heading into the third? We, uh, we're done with the second season. We're, we're still in the mix. We're still doing all that nonsense. And, um, uh, and there are a lot of talks ongoing about whether to continue. And, and I think there's a will to continue on both sides. I just want to make sure that I've got the stories that are good enough to do it. Given your knowledge, though, of the Queen, I feel like I have faith in you. You can find more stories. Yes, it's. It, but can you find? You know, as we're now entering a different era, you know, it, it needs to. I need to feel as hopeful that we can, um, we can really, you know, not just entertain, but really river and challenge people with 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 with, with the stories. And um, uh, but I've, I have a feeling we'll be okay. I think so. I hope. I know you get asked all the time whether or not the what you think about the Queen having seen it, and you've said that you hope that she hadn't. Why do you feel that way? Because then neither she nor I have to comment on it. (laughs) 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 Um, I mean, look, she's she's nine hundred and seventy years old, and and uh, why on earth would she know what Netflix is, and why would she care? Uh, And and uh, that's why I sort of slightly hope that she hasn't seen it because I think it's. uh, uh, I hope she's got better things to do. (laughs) I'm sure she has. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Best of luck. Thanks. I can't wait to see what's in store for season two of The Crown. Up next, here's Dolly Parton with her behind-the-scenes stories of her Christmas movie. Hello, Deborah. It's Dolly. Hi, Dolly. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. So, first of all, congratulations on the Emmy nomination. What does it mean to you? Well, thank you. I was very surprised and very happy about that. <laughs> You've gotten a few awards in your life. So, what does this one mean to you in particular? Well, I have. It's this one means a lot because it's about my family, and it's a, based on a little song. Of course, the first coat of many colors, you know, kind of led to the Christmas of many colors following that fall when the show came on but it was just just about you know being family and just showing uh you know christmas for what that meant and it was a way to show my good people to the world and uh the fact that it did so well and people related to it really was a was a nice nice christmas gift <laughs> early definitely why do you think people responded so much to it i do think that people are kind of missing this day and time family faith-based shows 
because I think there's, I remember how we used to love Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons. I think people are kind of missing that a little bit now that there's so much craziness going on in the world. So I think that it really resonated with people from that respect and the fact that the Christmas of many colors, most Christian families, you know, look for, Christ, you know, Christian-based movies. So I think the fact that it, you know, was kind of telling the Christmas story but having a, a true story behind it and some uh, some miracles and all those things that we Christians like to believe in and do, I think it just kind of resonated with a lot of people. And we were, we were, first of all, shocked at the great ratings. We were hoping it would do good, but it really, both movies did great. And then this get nominated, which we weren't even expecting that because it's, it was the only TV movie for a broadcast network that was nominated in the Outstanding TV movie category so that was really a surprise and a great compliment definitely it's pretty impressive what do the movies themselves mean to you what does it mean to you to be able to tell such personal stories well people have known me for years like i said i started young people kind of grew up with me and i i think i'm kind of like a favorite aunt or you know a big sister or something and they've heard me tell these stories and the fact that i represent that cinderella rags to riches story to say that you can come you know, from anywhere and be successful. And that's what we, that's what dreams are about. And that's what living in America has always been about. So I think uh, that I really enjoy exposing that. I like for people to, you know, to present it, to say that, hey, it's okay to dream. Your dreams are as good as mine. They're apt to happen as mine. So keep on going. So I'm, I try to be an inspiration and doing all these types of movies and a lot of them based on my songs. They're all stories based in truth. Um, and so I, I, hopefully people are connecting with it. It feels like they are. Are you able to watch them yourselves? I've heard you say that you make, they make you cry. Oh, they do make me cry. Uh, in fact, I, w- I refused when I saw the, um, the co- first Code of Many Colors. My sister Stella, who was also in both movies, she played, my sister Stella played the uh, Corla Bass, the lady that owned the merchandise store. And so I also you know, got to play the town tramp the lady that I had patterned my look after as a kid. So Stella and I got a big kick out of getting to play grown-up parts about the people in our hometown and, you know, while we presented our own life story. But it was really, you know, it was just really, you know, it's fun to kind of present those kind of things and uh, just, you know, en- enjoy working with all these wonderful, talented people and just trying to make my people proud of me. Talk about playing that role. Why did you decide to take on that part and be in the movie yourself? Well, I thought it was a spoof, but not a tacky one, not a corny one. I thought we could pull it off because I have for years told that story, and it's a famous Dolly story with my fans that I've talked about how I got my look, that I had patterned it after the lady, the town tramp in our hometown because I thought she was beautiful, and she wore the lipstick and the fancy yellow hair and the high heel shoes and flashy tight clothes and all the stuff that I thought was beautiful. And people would say she's just trash, and I would say, well, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. So it's always been one of my jokes, and they laugh. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool for me to get to be in this movie? How could I be it? The only way I could be in it was to play some character uh, in it. And I thought, well, she'd be the perfect one. So it just turned out to be just a nice little touch that I'll always be glad that I got to be in it. Other than that, do you have a favorite moment from the movie? Uh, well, I love so much of, of the movie. One of my favorite parts for fun 
is when the little dolly character was bargaining with the lady at the merchandise store, you know, trying to, you know, get her money back and trying to make her pay and getting the bargain and the deal on the wedding rings. And I thought she's wheeling and dealing. It makes me laugh because it's so much like how I do business. And that's one of the reasons we kind of presented it in that way. So that was one of my favorite parts. But of course, uh, I, we loved the, anything to do with the mama character. And when we all, you know, when we all prayed and the snow melted and we were all together and daddy came home, I guess the, when we were all together and daddy was running up, you know, we all was running to meet daddy when all the, the miracles had happened and the snow had melted and God had seen fit to let us all be together again. What would your mother think of this? Oh, my mom and daddy would love this. Lord, it made mama a star. She'd have, we wouldn't have been able to speak to her. <laughs> She'd have the big head. But actually, we could never present mom and daddy as, you know, as wonderful as they really were. But I think Jennifer Nettles did an incredible job. That was the other, the little Dolly character with uh, Olivia Lind uh, and the mama character were the two main ones that I said have to be right. And so, of course, they were all right. But Jennifer quizzed me a lot, and I volunteered a lot of information about mom and a lot of her personality. But Jennifer just was so spectacular. She she really carried the movie, you know, in such good ways. And I just loved it. And, of course, Ricky Schroeder has always looked like my dad, and I'd always thought that, that he looked like Daddy and my brothers through the years when I'd watched him. So he was perfect for Daddy. And Gerald McCraney didn't look like my grandpa, but he performed it because I talked to him a lot about my grandpa. And Gerald is such a great actor. He he just nailed it. So all the kids that played our brothers and sisters, we were so so proud of everybody. And, of course, the Pamela Long did a great script. And I'm sure you know Steve Herrick the, produced it or I mean uh, directed and Sam Haskell who is my partner he's one does all the dirty work and I get all the credit <laughs> or some of the credit but Sam has you know did worked great on both you know getting it all together doing all the details making sure we had all the right things in all the right places and all the right people so we were just blessed you know with NBC and Warner Brothers and everybody pulling together Olivia does such a fantastic job. What is it like working with such a young child actress like her? With little Allie? Yeah. Olivia? Oh, she was so special. I had said all along that God had to send her because she had to have the right spirit, the right talent, the right look, and she just had it all. That little thing learned to play that guitar in no time, and she'd never done that before. And she was not known as a singer, nor had she thought to be a singer. But she really, uh, it was amazing how talented that little thing was, and, and nobody even knew what all she, you know, had inside of her. She had just been acting up to then, but, you know, the fact that she pulled that off as a singer and musician, in addition to the acting, uh, she's just incredible. That little girl's going to have a big future, I think. Absolutely. Do you have any ideas for any other movies? Will you do a follow-up to this one? Well, we, I would like to do at least one more or two more to where all the kids are born. We talked about the the twins being born. We probably at least one more to where we can get Floyd and Frida, the twins, the ones that were born that we commented on in the show when Mom was pregnant again, and then uh, my baby sister Rachel. So we we'd like to do at least one more and come up with the you know, possibly because there were some dramatic and traumatic things going on on the birth of you know the twins and and Rachel. So we'll we'll come up with something and hopefully one more. Uh but we we don't have any commitment to it. It's but I think people are asking me to do something else. So one more would certainly be appropriate. 
Are you still working on the Jolene project as well? Yes, Jolene is going to be, I think, special. We're still, it's still in development, but we do not have an air date yet because we've gone around different times, whether to make it a movie of the week, maybe make it a series, maybe do this, do that. So we're, you know, we're still, we do have the full movie. We've been almost in production a time or two, and then we keep thinking, oh, what if we did this or rewrite this? So because it's such an iconic song, if we feel it needs to be done properly. And so we'll get there because it's definitely one of the, you know, the next ones up. Would you ever do a TV series? It's, it's not faith-based. Mm-hmm. It's not faith-based nor family-friendly. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't imagine based on the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like some NBC was having a little trouble with it. They can, oh, people want to see all this faith-based stuff. And I said, now, hey, look, I'm a songwriter and I got to write about everything. People know me for all my colors. So I can't just, you know, pigeonhole myself just into doing just family faith-based stuff i gotta be i gotta be free to write and do whatever i do so uh that was one of the one of the reasons we haven't had it out yet we're still trying to figure out they keep trying to make it family friendly i said will you stop she's a whore (laughs) (laughs) she's a red-headed whore (laughs) but actually she's not we're trying to make her her a little more friendly even whatever we do but she's just so beautiful that you know and you know with the the character that we want to, you know, to develop, or that we are developing. So we've got to give her some kind of moral values and all, but we'll see. But it's not going to be a coat of many colors, let's put it that way. It'd be more like Sex in the City, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyhow, thanks for asking, and my time is up, and I appreciate you taking the time to let me talk about how proud I am to be nominated for an Emmy Award. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, okay. Thanks, Deborah. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We've got a reality host special. We'll be talking to Tyra Banks from America's Got Talent and Andy Cohen from Bravo. See you next time. Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.